Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. In this episode, we will be examining how to effectively speak with our doctors remotely using virtual healthcare. IDF understands how important it is to be in contact with your doctor, especially during a pandemic. Virtual healthcare is a great alternative to help you stay home and stay healthy. And now, let's begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode, Telemedicine, Getting Healthcare Online. I'm your host, John Boyle. Making in-person doctor's appointments and checkups have always been the norm for all of us. However, with the spread of the coronavirus, many of us have tried to minimize entering new spaces. It can be daunting, especially for those of us living with primary immunodeficiency who are more susceptible to bacteria and infections. Luckily, many healthcare providers have transitioned over to telehealth or virtual healthcare due to the ongoing pandemic. Virtual healthcare is a broad term that encompasses all the ways that healthcare providers remotely interact with their patients. In addition to treating patients via telemedicine, providers may use live video, audio, and instant messaging to communicate with their patients. Virtual services can include urgent care, checkups, and different forms of counseling, such as behavioral and nutrition. Today, we'll be discussing the benefits and challenges of virtual healthcare with Dr. Syra Hawk, the Senior Health Informaticist and Virtual Care Portfolio Leader with Research Triangle Institute, or RTI International, an independent nonprofit institute that provides research, development, and technical services. Dr. Hawk holds a Master's of Health Services Administration in Health Management and Policy, as well as a PhD in Information and Science Technology. Her background includes a variety of consulting, research, and operations positions for provider organizations and health plans. Currently, she oversees RTI's work in telehealth. Dr. Hawk, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, since we have you here, can you walk us through the process of getting started with virtual healthcare? What type of appointments can you make remotely? Sure, um, I'd be happy to talk through that. So there are a number of different types of services that can be offered virtually. One, which is probably the most common, is a live video. So that's a face-to-face encounter, but face-to-face is through a computer screen. And it's real-time and has um, audio and video together. So that's probably what most people think of when they think about um, telehealth or virtual care. Um, But there are other services, too, and I thought we could talk a little bit about those. And not all of them require an appointment. Another type is uh, remote monitoring. And so that is kind of what it says, where there is maybe a device such as a continuous glucose monitor or maybe an implantable cardiac device that's actually uh, part of the patient or implanted in the patient and is delivering information to his or her provider. And so just as the title says, the provider can monitor the patient remotely. And so then the provider can make decisions and maybe make changes in a little bit more of a real-time basis, and it does not require an in-person appointment. 
There's also something called store and forward. And so what that means is that information is stored and then it's forwarded on to a different provider. And so for the community who might be listening, that might be something where maybe someone has been referred to a super specialist to take a look at all of the records and then weigh in. Um, another very common use of that is for radiology. And so, um, you know, a lot of times radiologists will look at images and then um, read them and look at them a little bit later. So it's not at the real time. And then finally, the last type is mobile health or mHealth. And that's where we're really looking at patient and caregiver generated information and engagement. So that could be things such as apps, where perhaps a patient or a caregiver is sharing information. A lot of times people think about portals. So that's really what mHealth or mobile health is. And as more people have gotten online, we've seen more uses of mHealth as patients and caregivers get more engaged and involved with their care and in communicating with their care team. So those are four of the most commonly used types of uh, virtual care. In terms of making an appointment, probably the one that's the most commonly used might be um, a live video, so a real-time appointment. And the real-time appointments can be with a variety of different providers. Certainly, people can have a primary care visit, Another type of appointment might be with a group of primary care providers or specialty care providers. Oftentimes, especially for people with PI, they may have a care team that encompasses a number of different types of providers. And everyone might have a little bit of a different idea of what the plan is. So telehealth could also be used to have a whole meeting with um, different providers and maybe even ancillary care providers or people who provide social services and maybe other types of services so that everyone is on the same page about what the plan is and what the goals are for the next facet of care. So it really depends on what the patient's needs are, but there really are a number of different ways in which virtual care can be used. And that's one reason that, off, that people are kind of switching a little bit from talking about telehealth or telemedicine to making a little bit more broad and talking about virtual or digitally enabled care. Well, thank you for uh, all of that. Now, can we talk about for a few moments, uh, you know, if your doctor and your care team is uh, willing to do uh, some sort of online appointment, what are the things that, uh, you know, that the, the patient or the parent should probably prepare themselves to do if they're, if they're new to this, if they have not really done much in the way of uh, these sort of online appointments, uh, things to make it the most successful from their point of view? Yeah, that's a really good question. A lot of times people have a little bit of trouble kind of wrapping their head around having a virtual healthcare visit. Everyone is so used to going into the doctor and they kind of know what to do. You go to the waiting room, then you get checked in, and there's a reasonable flow that's pretty similar across visits. That flow may or may not be the same for a virtual visit. So I think one thing to do is just kind of mentally prepare yourself that depending on the platform, it might be a little bit different. Sometimes there are virtual waiting rooms. Sometimes there are not. Sometimes um, you get a link and then you click on that link and then go to the visit um, through a phone. And sometimes you get it on email. So there's all different types of ways in which a visit can start. So I think one is to really make sure that you know, someone understands how the visit will start and what might be required of them. 
Another thing to really think about is the location of the visit. When someone goes to see their care provider, oftentimes they go to a purpose-built room and a purpose-built office that's designed for medical visits. With telehealth, people are being cared for in their own home. And so what that means is that the internet might not be consistent, the lighting of the room might not be consistent, and even the device might not be um, acclimated or really optimized for telehealth. So one thing that patients and caregivers can do is think about where in their house or wherever they're located, they might be taking the visit. Maybe take it in the place that has the best internet in your home. Or um, maybe you have to go somewhere else and take it where there's consistent internet. Another thing to think about is lighting. You want to make sure that you can see the provider, but also that they can see you. So depending on you know, where the windows are or maybe what the lighting is in the room, it is really helpful for rapport to make sure that you can see each other. And also if you want to show the provider something such as a rash, you want to make sure that there's sufficient lighting to do so. And then finally, I think it's important to really think about the device. Many people have phones and um, might take a telehealth visit that way. And so it's helpful if maybe you have like an easel or something to put the device on so that you're not holding it with one hand and then trying to talk and maybe also show the provider something. So it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Even putting the device up against a stack of books or something like that can be really helpful. So those are a couple of things that I might think about before a telehealth visit, just to make sure that it can be the most successful that is possible. Well, that makes uh, perfect sense. And it seems as if there's a lot of possibilities and advantages and opportunities uh, there with a, a telehealth visit. Um, but can we talk about some of the, the limitations um, of what virtual care, virtual health care, telemedicine really cannot do at this point? What is it that we can't do over the phone or over the computer or as part of these visits and still do require uh, the, uh, the in-person elements? That's a great question. Oftentimes when we're thinking about virtual care or telemedicine, people get very excited about the promise of it. And certainly during the coronavirus pandemic, when we've wanted to promote physical distancing, many things were moved to telemedicine that may or may not stay that way. In terms of what is well-suited for telehealth and what isn't, there's a couple different things to consider. One is that if you have a visit that's maybe like a quick check-in, maybe like a status update, wanting to know how things are going, and maybe just has maybe a singular purpose, then telemedicine can work really well for something like that. On the contrary, if a visit is a little bit more complicated, requires a physical exam, maybe requires the provider to feel something, you know, feel if a rash is hot or something like that, and maybe involves um, maybe a little bit more of a complicated history discussion where it might not be comfortable online, then I think a face-to-face -face visit might be uh, better indicated. Similarly, oftentimes with a telehealth visit, someone is taking the visit at home. And particularly as um, kids with PI grow up into young adults and teens, they may be discussing sensitive topics that they may or may not wish to talk about with their mom or dad in the next room. And so sometimes for things like that, it might be nice to have 
a face-to-face one-on-one visit where the provider and the patient can be assured that they have a little bit more privacy. So those are a couple of things to to think about. Now, there are times when even if a visit itself is not well-suited for telehealth or perhaps is better suited for face-to-face, the barriers to a face-to-face visit might be such that a telehealth visit might be better indicated. So, for example, if someone has to travel um, hours in order to get health care or if perhaps there's inclement weather, such as a snowstorm or a hurricane, or if there are cases like the wildfires that we just saw on the West Coast, it might be that even if a visit is better suited for face-to-face, the barriers are such that a telehealth visit is better indicated. And in those cases, it's really helpful because the alternative would be to cancel an appointment. So it's better to have some kind of contact, and then the provider and the patient together can decide what parts of the visit can be accomplished virtually, and then maybe save some other parts for a future face-to-face visit. Well, that all makes an enormous amount of sense and uh, I think really covers a lot of uh, uh, ground there. Uh, but one thing I do want to to kind of take a moment on, you mentioned a couple of moments ago that you, know, you might be taking uh, this uh, telemedicine uh, appointment from your home. Not everyone, of course, has uh, strong video quality internet access or necessarily the devices uh, on their own to do this. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the digital divide, uh, as it were, uh, and the promise of, uh, of, of telemedicine versus the challenges uh, with people who may have uh, trouble accessing it just because of uh, you know, the, the internet or the hardware issues that they may not have access to on their own easily? Certainly. And that is a real problem in the United States. Um, The United States does not have consistent broadband coverage throughout the country. And there have been a number of efforts across federal agencies and some nonprofits to attempt to improve broadband coverage. One is that during the coronavirus pandemic, the FCC um, actually had a few grant opportunities available for communities to apply for to shore up broadband coverage. Another is the USDA actually um, has also had a few um, opportunities available for communities to apply for coverage. And of course, there are a few nonprofit organizations. Now, those might seem like a little bit more of a long-term solution, but in order to shore up infrastructure throughout the country, it's really important to think long-term. So certainly one aspect of the digital divide is access to the internet. Another aspect is access to an internet-enabled device. Many of the telehealth platforms require access to a relatively recent internet-enabled device. And so what that means is that not only does the device have to be able to access the internet, but it might have certain requirements in terms of storage or how powerful the processor is or the type of device or things like that. And that certainly is another barrier. And then the third item that is a barrier is the ability to use the device. Many times people, um, patients, caregivers, or even providers might have devices, but not really be trained or know how to use them. And so then you really miss out on a few opportunities because um, if you're not able to use all the features and functions of a device, then that can really influence the ability to have a positive telehealth visit. 
So um, it's really important to think about the long view in providing access because telehealth is here to stay and we have to think more broadly throughout the country about access to broadband, access to devices that can be used for um, not only telehealth, but for other aspects, and then training so that people are able to use the devices. And together, all of those three elements provide the cornerstone for a successful telehealth visit. Uh, Well, dear listeners, you just heard Dr. Hawk say, telehealth is here to stay. So uh, with that, uh, let's take a a quick break, and uh, we will be back with you in just a few moments. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. And welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Syra Hawk. She's here to discuss the benefits and challenges of uh, telehealth and talking with your doctor from the comfort of your home uh, using virtual healthcare. So uh, we've talked uh, a lot about the the basics, uh, but let's dive a little bit more into some information that may be a little more specific uh, for people uh, who are living with primary immunodeficiency. Now, as a person living with PI myself, I know that many of us have to see different specialists. Uh, We talk to nurses or doctors about our treatments, uh, and then we also have to deal with a wide variety of symptoms that can cause discomfort. Uh, You talked a little bit about the team uh, approach that could happen, but can you talk a little bit more about the benefits and the application of virtual healthcare uh, for those of us who may have more appointments than most who are maybe just getting that annual physical or checking in when there's uh, you know a little something that is uh, uh, going on that's unusual? Certainly. There are a number of people that have appointments across different institutions. And so what that means is every single time that someone has an appointment, they have to go there, they have to park, they have to take time to check in and and so on and so forth. And so for people who are working or perhaps have to have a child or a parent or caregiver take time off of work to take them to an appointment, that can really result in a lot of time. And that time is not insignificant when taking time off work or school or whatever the case might be. So really from a convenience perspective, it can be really helpful to reduce the amount of time that appointments take. And particularly when people have to travel, then um, taking an appointment from home or from work can really be helpful and um, reduce the amount of time that's away while still getting all of the care that's needed. And especially when there's a time when perhaps there are a number of different appointments um, sequenced in a row, or maybe you're seeing someone once a week for eight weeks or something like that, um, you know, it's really helpful to have the ability to be able to take some of those appointments at home or at work. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That that I think will be uh, of great interest to our community, especially if they've not really experienced 
this sort of approach to uh, to their care virtually. Um, now, of course, in addition to the uh, uh, the issues of members of our community having a lot of different appointments uh, and some of the pieces that are unique to the uh, PI community and those who have uh, maybe chronic illnesses, uh, we're also very, very familiar with insurance issues, grappling with insurance, getting coverage uh, for the sort of care that we need. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is and isn't covered uh, by insurance right now when it comes to uh, visiting their doctor online versus in person and and some of the maybe broad uh, buckets uh, that, that you have seen as being uh, maybe easy to do versus more challenging? Certainly. One thing to note is that the payer landscape for telemedicine and all variety of virtual services has been changing over the last few years. So something that might or might not have been covered last year could be very different this year. Also, many payers have changed their policies due to the coronavirus pandemic. CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is probably one of the largest payers here, and they have really expanded access to remote services because of the pandemic. So that includes things such as expanding services that are allowable to be reimbursed, expanding the provider types that can be reimbursed through telehealth, removing distinctions about where the patient can be located, um, so previously, patients could not be located at home in order to have a reimbursable visit, but had to be located at a healthcare facility. Now, during the coronavirus pandemic, we were wanting to promote physical distancing, and so that distinction was removed, and so visits with the patient at home were allowed to be reimbursed. Similarly, there were location distinctions around patients being in rural areas, well, the pandemic really influences rural and urban areas, so those distinctions were also removed. Finally, the types of visits that were allowed to be reimbursed were expanded. Now, it's not really clear how many private payers have made the similar changes, but we have seen that many private payers and Medicaid programs throughout the country have followed suit in expanding access and expanding coverage for virtual care visits. All of these changes have been designated to be for the duration of the coronavirus pandemic. So it will be interesting to see which of those changes are retained or rolled back when the pandemic is over. But for now, we can see um, that there has been quite a bit of expansion of visit types and care types that are reimbursable digitally. Well, that is, uh, I think, enormously probably heartening for our listening audience to hear, uh, you know, that there has been this sort of expansion. And again, uh, because of the coronavirus, uh, these new opportunities have been opened up. We won't hold you to this, but if you can, uh, you know, maybe peer into your crystal ball a little bit um, as we move forward, you know, in the next, let's say, year or years to come, um, you know, if you were a betting person, what would you say are some of the long-term trends that we might expect to see with the sort of uh, continued rollout, uh, you know, of uh, telehealth opportunities, as well as uh, maybe some of the the long-term challenges uh, that that sort of expanded approach uh, may also uh, uh, come hand in hand with? Certainly, and I think a lot of people are taking a look at what the future might hold for telehealth right now. In a way, the coronavirus pandemic provided a natural experiment. We saw 
a really rapid increase in virtual care services. And so now it's time to look at what happened. Were there changes in costs, quality, outcomes? Were there certain types of visits that maybe were better suited to telehealth than not? And then are there some types of services that maybe are not suitable for virtual care? And I think by really studying that, that could really help inform future policy because then we'll know, you know what happened as a result of this massive telehealth uptake and then what might be best to retain for the future and what might be changes that we want to roll back. So I think that um, there certainly will be some expansion that stays because now that people have had a taste of telehealth and its convenience, it'll be really hard to go back. However, um, as I mentioned earlier, telehealth is not suitable for every type of visit. And so now that we've learned a little bit more about it, we can spend some time and devise maybe some parameters or some things to maybe guidelines for both patients and providers to consider when deciding about telehealth versus face-to-face visits in the future. Well, fabulous. I, I think that uh, we, we've talked about the uh, the sort of current and then the potential uh, uh, landscape for uh, for telehealth and for virtual care, virtual health care. So I think that that is a great place for us to stop for today. You know, I think that this was enormously uh, useful uh, for our community, especially just because of, again, where we are and where it is that we we hope to go. So uh, thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Hawk or Syra to me uh, for sharing your insight about uh, this, uh, this topic and with all of us here today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to chat with you. And many thanks to all of our listeners for being with us today. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one uh, as we explore topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There are always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. And leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.